Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Lost in all of the other activity in the last few months is a Biden administration proposal to create a new Office of Management and Budget Circular. Now, this new circular describes a centralized data management strategy to help agencies with acquisition decision making. One industry group has questions, though. We get more now from the executive vice president for policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Castro. They want to talk about a data environment where all kinds of procurement data would be brought together. I thought these things sort of exist now. What's the uh, council's take on this proposal? Well, Tom, thanks so much for raising this issue. It is a big deal for OMB to release a proposed new circular and particularly to ask the public for comments on it. So while we appreciate the visibility into what they're thinking, we do have a lot of questions and our comments reflected five or six of these uh, and I can go quickly through them now. You're exactly right. There are data environments that are created agency by agency. And so what this circular does propose to do is create an enterprise-wide data system to gather, collect, analyze, access, et cetera, acquisition data. One of the concerns that we have in our government contracting community is, you know, who would be authorized to access that data? How would they protect it? As you know, a lot of the cost and pricing data are business sensitive. And so it really does become the competitor's competitive edge vis-a-vis their, their, um, the rest of the industry. And so who will access this data? How etc. becomes very, very important. One question, would it be what's already publicly available, which is the price of a particular contract, because contracts are public information, and we bought this much of this from this agency for this much, versus how much is bid and range and proprietary information that I guess is recorded by the government, but it's not supposed to be made public? That's a great synopsis of it, Tom, because part of it is, you know, unpacking sub-tier so your subcontractor, your vendor data. Also, what discounts do you offer to the agency in the course of negotiations? That's also very, very sensitive. And so the comments that we have focus on access and, and authorization to get these data out of the system. Another one is sub-tier pricing, et cetera, which can be a challenge for even prime contractors to get. Oftentimes from their subcontractor, they'll get a number, but they don't know what comprises that number. Another issue that we have is you know, what requirements are for one agency are not exactly matched to another agency's requirements. And so it could be an apples to oranges comparison here. And so how are they training folks accessing this data to actually understand what it is that they're looking at? Right. If you're looking at, say, the data regarding the acquisition of Canon printers or something, that's one thing. But if you're looking at professional services, those all have a slightly different take and flavor because no two projects are identical. And no two individuals are identical, right? So you may even have one uh, position description for one company and it requires five years experience, but what you pay one individual is not what you pay another individual. And so again, being able to understand these data, to, to be able to analyze them. One concern we have, as I mentioned earlier, is how are these folks in the government being trained to look at this data? 100% agree that, you know, Better Contracting Initiative, which was rolled out by the administration back in November to save billions of dollars to the American taxpayer, that's good intent. But the, the devil is in the details here. And how will they protect the information? 
And how will people understand it? And that's not clear from the circular. Besides, I mean, aren't we sort of 10 years into category management and the rise of the IDIQ with hundreds, sometimes scores or hundreds of contractors on them, all with pre-negotiated pricing? And we're in a basically task order world now. Is this needed at this point? This sounds sort of 1990-ish. I'm glad you raised that because one of the comments that we have and, and you mentioned IDIQs and government-wide acquisition contract vehicles, et cetera. There has also been a, a push for lowest price technically acceptable versus best value. That is a conversation that's been had over the last decade or so. Um, and for me, when I look at how they're gathering data, collecting it, and analyzing it, sharing it, I just hope that this is not a push towards let's do lowest price technically acceptable. Because the best value is where you get those nuances of that you know five-year requirement uh, for an individual that I mentioned earlier, you know they're not all created equal, particularly in the services arena. And so we're watching this very closely to make sure this is not a trend towards LPTA, that it is actually getting the government what they want, what they need as the best value of proposition. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro. She is vice president for policy at the Professional Services Council. And I want to switch topics here and ask you about the, been out now a couple of weeks now, the National Defense Industrial Strategy. I think people were expecting something more aimed at the fact that there's a shortage of suppliers and of critical commodities needed by the Defense Department. It looked to me like more of a recitation of general supply chain issues and so on. And what was the Professional Services Council take on it? So we welcomed this first ever industrial-based strategy. Um, you know, I was born and raised professionally at the Pentagon. And so for me, a strategy is ends, ways, and means. And the means piece is the resourcing piece. And for me, that's sort of what's missing from the strategy. I'm sure that information will come. Um, but you're right. It does talk a lot about resilient supply chains, making sure they understand as the customer that DOD understands its uh, industrial base, where they're getting certain items, et cetera. There are other areas that are of high interest to the Professional Services Council. And one focus area in this strategy is the workforce readiness. So they talk about a lot about touch labor, et cetera, and making sure they can destigmatize production careers for, for young folks. Because we are the Professional Services Council, we look at the other side of that coin, which is the services piece of it. And we also look at something separate, which is not yet really addressed in the strategy, which is how are you going to train contracting officers within the government or contracting officer representatives in the government to understand technology and what they're looking at? So we're looking to the Pentagon to, to talk a little bit more about workforce readiness in a holistic manner, not just the touch labor piece. Although if you look at what the DOD's issue is, it's not getting software, for example. There's millions of mediocre software programmers in the country <laughs> and some really lousy ones that manage to get their stuff into the market. But welders, people that understand how to make a really good complex forging or casting and the companies to do that kind of stuff with some of the new exotic alloys, that not so much these days. Right. And one of the focus areas they have, you know, obviously is, as I mentioned, the destigmatization of, you know, those kinds of careers for welders, uh, electricians, etc. They do have a, a few lines about uh, targeting critical STEM sets. So talking about wanting the government and government contracting work to be attractive to generations, not just the purely commercial work. And that's where, you know, we are seeing some issues within the professional services community of, you know, why work for a government contractor if you could work for a purely commercial entity? And so that's the struggle. Uh, to call it a struggle is probably an overstatement, but that is one of the challenges that we're facing in terms of recruiting, retention, promotion of 
the next generation of workers. Yeah, it's really a balance because looking at the tanker that the, the Defense Department has been trying to buy now, I don't know, 20, 25 years to get a tanker. There's a couple copies, I guess, flying of this new one, but it's really not in mass production yet. You've got designers, but then you also have those people on the line that have to, you know, make sure the door plugs don't blow off. That would be bad for a tanker with a fighter <laughs> right. flying underneath it. Sorry. Right. But, you know, that's a defense industrial-based topic. 100%. And I also think about those sustainers, right? The repair personnel who have to be out there. And that's considered a service, right? So when we when we talk about um, production lines, I think that's great. But you also have to train the workforce to be able to to use what's coming off the production line. Um, another area, Tom, just so, so we can talk about the two other focus areas of the strategy is flexibility and acquisition authorities um, and making sure, you know, you have either multi-year procurement authority, et cetera. This is where we run into who owns the intellectual property. And so we're working with the, the Pentagon and folks who are leading the strategy through to implementation about, you know, what, what does it mean for companies? And then the last, the fourth area they're looking at is economic deterrence, which is making sure that we are participating in standard setting bodies, et cetera. So it's a little bit more esoteric than some of the other topics. But as a whole, we are really looking forward to working with the Department of Defense on its implementation plan. We understand that will be classified and, and that's that's fine. But as we move forward, what input can we provide to help them understand from the industry side what these four prongs, supply chain, workforce, acquisition, and economic deterrence how they impact us. And not to gloss over that area about standard setting, but China would like to be the country that sets the standards for industrial goods and so on, process industries. And it's always been kind of a United States-led and European-led type of thing that seeds some economic power when you seed the standard setting power. It's actually a pretty crucial issue. That's exactly right. And I, I think this is also where our alliances and strategic partnerships come into play of you know, who, who are the folks who are going to be standing with us instead setting those standards when you might be across the table from an economic powerhouse like China? A lot of countries around the world are dependent on China for some of their goods. Um, and so making sure that the U.S. has a very strong voice alongside our partners and allies. Well, I have two sets of sockets and wrenches and probably always will. So we want to make sure that there's a, <laughs> that standard is still there. Stephanie Castro is vice president for policy at the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com along with a link to more information slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. 
And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. And also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is 
What do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.